Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 182, Mars Perseverance Landing. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight, space exploration, and today, landing a rover on Mars. On July 30th, 2020, NASA's Mars Perseverance rover launched atop a ULA Atlas V 541 rocket from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Since then, it's been traveling at more than 50,000 miles per hour, cruising towards Mars to make the near 300 million mile trek through deep space for seven months and land in Jezero Crater on the Red Planet. That journey is nearing its end. On February 18th, 2021, Perseverance will make its way through the Martian atmosphere and enter into what is famously known as the Seven Minutes of Terror. This is the phase of flight called entry, descent, and landing. And for Perseverance and the teams at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, this may be the most critical seven minutes of the flight to the Martian surface. So here to go into the details on entry, descent, and landing of Perseverance is Chloe Sackier entry, descent, and landing communication systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So let's get right into it. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit correct. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Chloe Sackier, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, we're uh, we're in the home stretch here. We're we're coming up on on something I think you have been preparing for for a very long time. How are you feeling in this moment right now? Just being so close to the uh, Perseverance landing. Very very excited. Uh, a little nervous. I think the the nerves everyone um, is feeling as we get closer and closer. Right now, at the time of this recording, we are. 30-some days away from February 18th, our big day. That's right. And uh, there's a lot to do just beforehand. And then what we're going to dive into today is is exactly what this what this moment is that we're talking about, the landing and what's, and what's going to go down. I want to give our listeners, though, a bit of background and, and just kind of start from the beginning to talk about what this thing is that is uh, landing on Mars and why it's such a big deal. Let's just start there, Chloe. What is the Perseverance Lander? Sure. So the Perseverance rover is the most capable rover that NASA and JPL have ever built uh, and are sending to Mars. It's tasked with some really exciting mission objectives. It's searching for signs of ancient life, uh, collecting rock and regolith samples for possible future sample results, and it's preparing for humans eventually traveling to Mars. Uh, The part that I'm most knowledgeable about is that it's landing in uh, Jezero Crater on the Red Planet on the 18th of February in 2021. Uh, Jezero Crater is uh, the site of an ancient river delta in a lake that used to to fill this crater. Uh, And additionally, um, on top of all that exciting science, Perseverance also carries a smaller robotic buddy, a little helicopter named Ingenuity, which will be the very first aircraft to test controlled flight on another planet. So lots of exciting firsts. Yeah, absolutely. Now this uh, this landing on Jezero Crater. This is uh, you said it's a river delta, and that's it. Sounds very interesting. It sounds like that there's a reason that we're going to land in this area. What's so special about Jezero? Yeah, so Jezero Crater was identified as uh, a really exciting site that has a lot of scientific potential. 
because it is this uh, ancient river delta location, um, there are all these fascinating and super rich mineral deposits that the scientists think might be able to help us answer those questions about seeking signs of ancient life. And also from an entry, descent, and landing perspective, it's a safe enough site for us to uh, touch the Perseverance rover down at a nice, safe, clean location. Yeah, right. You don't want a lot of a lot of stuff in the way of that uh, of that landing and that that journey. It sounds like a long ways, right? I think it's like three hundred million miles uh, that the journey was from from Earth uh, to Mars. And it launched last year, um, July thirtieth, I believe, was the was the launch date. We kind of pushed it back, but we were still within that window. Um, I, where were you, were you there? Were you there at the launch? Were you able to witness it? I was, yes. I was fortunate enough to uh, travel to the launch at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Of course, due to the pandemic, the launch wasn't quite the celebratory affair that we were all sort of expecting. Right, yeah. Several of us were able to to travel uh, safely along so we could watch in a socially distant beach setting uh, the launch and listen along and support our, our friends and colleagues on console as they ensured a successful and safe launch. So there's a lot that goes into that, right? There was a lot of prep work to get Perseverance into that rocket. You know, there was you've already mentioned a few of the objectives of Perseverance. So there's quite a number of instruments on there. But but your role, Chloe, is is entry, descent, and landing. So what have you been up to throughout the whole development of of this uh, the Perseverance rover? Um, what, what goes into preparing for entry, descent, and landing on Mars? So. Entry, descent, and landing, I think, is such a fascinating uh, phase of the mission because it's really just a handful of minutes, but it takes years and years and hundreds of thousands of man hours of effort to ensure that those few minutes uh, go safely and smoothly. Um, My personal role on the entry, descent, and landing team uh, is ensuring that our spacecraft is talking to us. I'm the entry, descent, and landing communications systems engineer. So I care about making sure that the the rich set of data that we generate during uh, entry, descent, and landing, or EDL, makes it off of our spacecraft, makes it uh, to our orbiters at Mars, makes it through the deep space network, and then eventually back to us uh, at JPL so we can reconstruct exactly what is happening during those, those exciting minutes. We're really invested and interested in knowing exactly what goes on during those minutes, so we want to wrangle all of the ears that we can on the Earth side and all the ears we can around Mars and have them pointed towards Mars and, and listening into what the spacecraft is saying to us. So what's it saying, Things Chloe? That, what, what do you care about when you're getting this data? What, what is meaningful data that's going to help you to be successful for the EDL phase? Yeah, so we, we're really invested in what she's saying, in part because we want to know that she's okay, because those those seven minutes of terror, as uh, it's often referred to, uh, are really quite scary, and, and it's easily the most dangerous part of the mission. Um, so we're invested in just hearing from Perseverance as often as we can during entry, descent, and landing. Uh, but we also want to understand what decisions she's making as she's progressing throughout that flight, throughout EDL. Uh, so we, we care about um, – she, she sends us little bits of telemetry that uh, explain what decisions she makes autonomously – and then, of course, when she, once she touches down safely, um, the rover lets us know that it's all right and that EDL went well. Very cool. So what has, uh, what has Perseverance been up to so far? We, we talked about launch last year. Um, since launch, you know, it, it was inserted into an orbit around, um, around the Earth and then eventually did a, uh, 
trans Mars injection burn to, to get all the way to that planet. What's happened since then? What has it been doing? Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, it's a nearly 300 million mile journey to Mars. And at this point, uh, we've traveled nearly 250 million miles. Um, but that seven-month journey is anything but quiet. Uh, engineers at JPL like to keep a close eye on the spacecraft while she's cruising. Um, we do all sorts of things to make sure that uh, she is doing okay and that, that we're prepared for eventually entry, descent, and landing, and then the following uh, surface operations. So we keep an eye on the health. We carry out general maintenance uh, and monitoring, calibrate a lot of subsystems and instruments, uh, we perform some small attitude corrections to make sure that uh, we keep antennas um, pointed back towards Earth so we can talk to the spacecraft, and then we want to keep our solar panels pointed towards the sun so we get power. And then on top of all that, uh, we also do these trajectory correction maneuvers to tweak the flight path and make sure we're headed to the right target. Um, and then, of course, we, we do a lot of instrument checkouts uh, for devices that we specifically care about during EDL, make sure that everything's ready to turn on. Now, I was looking at some of those course correction maneuvers, and there weren't many on the way to Mars, but from what I saw, they really picked up in the February time frame, like right before landing. So why do you need to make uh, at least these more major corrections or, or, or significant milestones? Why are they later in the flight? Yeah, so we, we have five opportunities uh, plus one backup and one contingency maneuver to adjust our flight path. And when those maneuvers occur, they all sort of have different, um, we get something different out of each one. So so the trajectory trajectory correction maneuvers that we do earlier on, uh, like a, a couple of weeks after launch, those um, help us point the spacecraft towards the general direction of Mars uh, and fine tune the flight path uh, after launch and, and sort of help us um, get rid of any injection errors that might've come from our launch. Uh, and then the TCMs, uh, the trajectory correction maneuvers in the middle of cruise, like the December-ish time frame, um, really help us fine-tune that even more, even more precisely. And the maneuvers that we do in February uh, leading up to entry, descent, and landing are, are really more targeted. Um, and then also a backup and contingency maneuver that we don't plan to use but are available to us if we need to at the last minute. It's really about making sure that that tra trajectory is right on target because you got a you got a tiny little area that you want to hit, right? And that's that's Jezero Crater, and you have three hundred million miles to make the to make the arrow fly exactly where you want to. I guess I guess is a way to think about it. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And uh, we like to joke around a lot that the spacecraft flies itself, uh, the EDL flies itself, but we we have to our job leading up to EDL is to make sure that. She has all the information of, about her, um, her, her, the way that she's she's coming into the planet because that that really helps um, ensure that that EDL uh, comes off more successfully. So this is not going to be just like a, a new thing for you guys. I'm sure that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has uh, put together simulations and, and programs and, and run through and tested what uh, you guys believe is going to be the EDL. Uh, environment. What's what's going to happen during those phases of flight? How do you construct those sims? How did they go? Um, uh, just more about, I guess, practicing for the ultimate entry, descent, and landing phase of this flight. Yeah. So uh, we have definitely spent a long time preparing, and as the saying goes, practice makes perfect. 
Um, and we have many different ways that we essentially dry run or practice EDL to make sure that we understand everything about the system and we're prepared for anything that Mars might throw at us. So like many other people on the EDL team, I'm also a member of the EDL testing team in our, our mission system test bed, which is essentially, uh, I like to compare it to a car because it's, it's this amazingly, the test bed is, a, is an amazingly complex vehicle in its own right. It's based all the guts and brains of a real live spacecraft laid out on a table uh, and you can send commands to it and send it through these different simulated environments. So in this test bed, we basically get to dry run EDL over and over and over and ensure that the, the flight software is interfacing correctly with the hardware. Um, I like to say that we're essentially rehearsing the choreography of EDL and oftentimes in off nominal situations to make sure that the flight system is really robust. So, Sometimes we might do a simulation with an atmosphere that is different from what our models tell us to expect, or we'll do a simulation with some, some important devices not functioning the way we would expect them to. And then we, we study the response of the flight system uh, to those fault injections. So all of this was just making sure that before you sent Perseverance into space for that ultimate landing that you had the confidence necessary because you've gone through all of these different simulated environments to make sure that Perseverance, she, can can stand up to the test. And that's that's really the, the goal there was that's why you were doing all of these repetitious, you mentioned over and over and over, all these repetitious <laughs> sims. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing that um, people may not always appreciate about this phase is that there's no way really for us to test this uh, system in an end-to-end um, manner on the ground because we can't, or on the, on the ground meaning on Earth here, on this planet, we can't uh, simulate Mars um, in the exact same way that we're going to be sending the spacecraft through. So we sort of have to address, we have to test the whole system in bits and pieces. So we can test our flight software and, and flight hardware. We can go through these um, specific to bits of hardware in the system, like parachute tests or like uh, uh, test specific to the rover, but we can't test it all together in an environment just like what we'll see uh, in February on Mars until we're actually doing the real thing. Now, uh, this this February landing, February 18th, from what I understand, um, this, you know, we, I, we t I talked about in the beginning, you know, ultimately the launch was uh, July 30th, but there was this, this window, and I guess because of the way orbital mechanics works, February 18th, is your day right there's no there's no circle around and retry like this is your <laughs> moment right yep there's no go around <laughs> <laughs> so it's got to work right that's why you 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 do all of it another reason you do all of the tests is because you really only have one shot there's no redo there's no start over um this is this is it is one moment one shot yes yes that's that's absolutely right and like i mentioned earlier this thing does land itself, but we, we need to help it. Uh, so we care about, in our, our final approach phase, uh, prior to EDL, we want to get the spacecraft ready for EDL. So we monitor all of these activities that the spacecraft is doing, these reconfigurations and mode transitions and conditioning and turning everything on. Uh, we want to make sure we get to the right place to start EDL at the right time so that we're, we're really on target. And we make sure that our, our entry guidance uh, that, that's run inside the spacecraft's computers um, we're not stressing it too much and it's able to do the job that we're asking it. Uh, and then we also want to tell the spacecraft what it needs to know. So when I mention all those trajectory correction maneuvers and these parameter updates that we're doing in these, these last few weeks, that's what we're doing and really preparing the spacecraft 
to hit that exact point, uh, that exact location at that exact point in time. So I want to get a picture of, of just what's flying through space right now, because um, we all saw the launch, but it was on it was this rocket, you know, and there was a shell on top of it, so we couldn't see kind of the mm-hmm. construction of what this thing looks like flying through space. Give us a picture of of what it looks like in the crew's face right now. Sure. So there's there's the Perseverance uh, and tiny little Ingenuity hanging on underneath. Uh, the rover is wrapped up in the heat shield and the descent stage. Uh, and the back shell, and and that all of those critical pieces right there uh, are essentially the main players in EDL. So the heat shield will protect us uh, during entry. Uh, the the back shell is um, what we deploy our parachute from, and that's sort of behind the rover. Uh, and then the the descent stage is, is what what flies us to our actual. It's it's sort of like our our rover jetpack. Uh, so all of that is packaged up uh, and held by the cruise stage, which is the vehicle that um, takes us all the way to Mars. It, it has all of the fuel tanks and the, the radio equipment and antennas and everything. Um, and that cruise stage takes us all the way till just 10 minutes before entry. And then at that point, we, we separate from, from the cruise stage. You guys got a cool website where you can kind of see, uh, it's like a map of where this is, this whole setup that you're talking about, where it is in space and how fast it's going. And last time I looked, it was traveling at 50,000 miles per hour. Is that is that how fast it's going to get 300 million miles away? Yes, yes, 50,000 miles per hour. It's uh, quite a speeding ticket. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's got a long way to go, so we have no time to waste. <laughs> Well, uh, Chloe, let's go into the uh, the entry, descent, and landing phase. This is this is uh, the seven minutes of terror, as you called it. What I'm, I'm curious to hear why it is called that. But let's go through step by step. Uh, this, you know, what's going to happen as as uh, it gets closer to Mars and, and gets into this phase. Sure. So, uh, as I mentioned just before, we separate from our cruise stage, that vehicle that safely escorted us all the way to Mars uh, about 10 minutes before entry. Uh, and then at entry, we, we hit the atmosphere of Mars. We use the atmosphere of Mars to start slowing down. Um, it's thinner than the atmosphere of Earth, so we can't slow down completely using it. But uh, there's enough atmosphere there that it does help us bleed off, bleed off a little bit of velocity. And during that time, we're protected by that heat shield, um, about 80 seconds after entry, we hit a period called peak heating. Uh, at that point, the temperature on the outside of the heat shield is around 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit or 1,300 degrees Celsius, really, really hot. And during that time, uh, while we're doing entry, we're, we're steering towards our target using this principle called guided entry that was uh, essentially adapted from the Apollo era. Um, and this, this approach helps us stay on target while we might be hitting pockets of air that would maybe bump us around a little bit. Uh, while we're on that heat shield, um, we slow down to just under 1,000 miles per hour. And then at that point, we deploy the largest supersonic planetary parachute that has ever been used. Uh, it's about 70 and a half feet or, or 21 and a half meters in diameter. And we deploy it at about Mach 1.75. Also really, really fast. <laughs> At that point, we're about uh, seven miles high in altitude and, and going around uh, 940 miles per hour. And then uh, shortly after that, we jettison our heat shield at about Mach 0.7. Uh, this uncovers the radar that we use to start searching for the ground. And this is where the terrain relative navigation concept uh, takes the stage. Um, 
and 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 starts searching for the ground, we use this uh, this this concept TRN to uh, take pictures of where we are and and match those pictures up to an onboard map. So it's sort of like an uh, like if you're driving in your car and you're using a, a GPS instead of just um, looking out the window, you you see pictures of where you are and you map, match those up uh, to your map to help you figure out and localize yourself. Uh, so then around this point, we we drop out our descent stage. That rover jetpack drops out of the back shell uh, because we we don't want to uh, recontact that back shell and parachute. We execute a divert maneuver to quickly get out of the way. At this point, we're just under 7,000 feet above the surface. And then while we're on that descent stage, that takes us down to a velocity of, uh, I think, 0.75 meters per second. So way, way slower than we've been traveling before. Uh, and, and when we're traveling this fast, we're about 20 meters off the ground. And then at this point, we execute the sky crane maneuver. So this is what was originally debuted on the Curiosity rover. It separates the rover from the descent stage from that rocket jetpack and touches Perseverance down safely and slowly on her wheels. And then as soon as we have confirmation of, uh, as, soon as, as soon as the rover has confirmed that she's touched down, we um, separate the descent stage uh, connection and fly the descent stage away to a safe distance and that's, that's all there is to it we're on mars all there is to it but when you think about it all of that everything you just described happens in seven minutes and uh yeah. the the challenge there is um i think um one of the challenges at least there's a lot of challenges you just went over a lot of them but one of them is like you said this is all happening by itself because the Mars is so far away that by the time it actually communicates what's happening to you on Earth in in uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, real time on Mars, it has already happened because of the communication delay, right? Yes, that's true. Our our one way light time at this point in the mission is over uh, eleven minutes, so it takes eleven minutes for information to travel from Mars back to us at Earth. Um, and because of that massive distance and, and massive uh, delay, we can't joystick the rover through landing. We can't fly it ourselves. It has to happen completely autonomously. That's incredible. Chloe, I want to go through and, and kind of ask questions about every phase of this flight from, from beginning to end. Um, we, we did actually have a, a subtle dropout uh, you were talking about uh, you. You talked about um, slowing down and entering into the atmosphere. Uh, we we kind of missed that part of it, but I think the the question or uh, about that phase was how do we get down from fifty thousand miles an hour to uh, the ten thousand miles an hour? Is is that is that what you said? Was it ten thousand miles an hour when you actually hit the atmosphere? Yeah. So it, it's. It's a little complicated orbital mechanics-wise, but basically in cruise, we are traveling 50,000 miles per hour relative to the sun. Uh, but then once we actually hit the atmosphere for entry, uh, at that point, we're going about 12,000 miles per hour, a little over 12,000 miles per hour. Okay, so it's not really slowing, it's not really slowing down. It's just kind of relative to how Mar fast Mars is traveling or something like that? Yeah, that's true. The the fifty thousand is relative to the position of the sun, and then when we when we hit atmosphere, that that twelve thousand number that's relative to Mars. Got it. Uh, but we do use the atmosphere to slow down significantly um, before we we deploy our heat shield. We bleed off a lot of velocity up there. Right. It goes from ten thousand to to one thousand miles an hour. Right. 
Uh, we deploy our parachute, uh, yeah, just, just about around uh, 1,000 miles per hour. Now, a little under. I, I got it. You were talking about some of the, you know, some of the sims you were running, and and these these parachutes. Um, you're deploying them at supersonic speeds, right? I mean, I feel like if if you were to deploy anything at that speed, it would just kind of snap. Uh, so how does <laughs> how, how does that work? You know, how does a supersonic? How do you how are you able to deploy a supersonic parachute that's able to, you know, perform that job and not snap? <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's true. It's it's a blistering high speed, and to uh, to have a, a soft goods material that, that's capable of withstanding that, we basically build a really really strong parachute uh, and test it in all of these different stressing conditions. Um, so we, when I mentioned earlier about testing uh, EDL and bits and pieces, the parachute is obviously this this critical component, the sort of quarterback of the team uh, that that our, our a safe EDL is, is dependent and reliant on. So we test our parachute in uh, in big wind tunnels. We do sounding rocket tests uh, to simulate what that supersonic deployment might look like and feel like to the parachute, um, and then all sorts of lower level tests as well. So what's uh, what's challenging? You talked about the heat shield heating up to I think it was thirteen hundred degrees. Um, you have supersonic parachutes that are deploying here. What are the challenges here with just Mars being the planet that it is? It's got it's got an atmosphere, so you have to deal with that atmosphere. So you have to have a heat shield, but you don't have enough, you know, a, a thick enough atmosphere where parachutes aren't going to do the whole, you know, as as much as they do on Earth for for any missions that we have. We deploy parachutes and they land safely, either on land right. or water. What what are some of the challenges here with just dealing with Mars? Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's the common expression is uh, there's not fear to really use it enough to to aerobrake to the point where we've you know have slowed down enough, but there's just enough atmosphere that you have to pay attention to it and take it into consideration. Um, there's all of these you know it's it's always fascinating to learn about Mars weather be, and to, to even think about what weather looks like on another planet. But Mars is a planet just like our own. It has um, has weather. It has winds. It has dust storms. Uh, all of these components that we have to study and understand a little bit about so we can plan how they might uh, impact us and affect us. Um, there's there's the parachute. We already discussed the the excitement of the parachute. When we get to the 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 stage where we have jettisoned our heat shield and we're using our, our radar to search for the ground, that's a really fascinating point in the mission as well because we. We're looking to land in Jezero Crater, which is a scientifically exciting location, uh, but also from an entry, descent, and landing perspective, we need a landing site that is, is safe enough to touch down. So the things that we're looking for is uh, an altitude of a landing site that's not too high, that gives us enough time to stop, uh, and not too dangerous to land on, so not completely full of sand dunes or rocks or, or slopes or really rough terrain. Uh, we want it to be um, radar reflective to a certain uh, certain extent, and that the atmospheric conditions, like I mentioned, are okay, not too dusty, not too windy. Um, so Jezero Crater is really this interesting spot because it's, from a terrain perspective, the most exciting that we've ever attempted a landing on uh, for EDL. Um, but we want to get there for the science and and our new uh, new technological functionality of TRN allows us to to travel to that um, little bit more rocky, little bit more sandy uh, crater that we care about visiting. 
Well, let's go into that. Let's go into terrain relative navigation. This is a critical technology that was put on Perseverance. What is this technology? Yes, so terrain relative navigation, uh, quite simply put, it gives us eyes. So instead of just taking pictures on the way down, we're taking those pictures and matching them up to a map that is on board uh, the spacecraft. Like I mentioned earlier, just like you or I could look out the window while we're driving our car uh, and match up um, landmarks or things that we're seeing to a map. So TRN helps Perseverance uh, figure out where it is. And once the spacecraft knows where it is, it can use uh, its engines to um, fly to a safe landing spot that it, it picks and, and decides upon. So we've, the humans behind the scenes have done the work over the last few years to map out and really understand every little nook and cranny of this landing site uh, and identify using uh, some fascinating algorithms and sometimes just our eyes <laughs> the, the spots that we think are safe to land in and the spots that we, we don't want Perseverance to choose. And then we give all of that information to the spacecraft and uh, in the form of that onboard map. And then while, while she's flying EDL, she takes those pictures, uh, checks those pictures and where she thinks she is against that onboard map and says, okay, this is where I want to fly. This is safe. I'm going to turn on my engines and, and lean over and fly that way. So those so, engines, are they, in the, are they in the back shell and they're just kind of little pulses to, to guide it the right way? We, we have a, a bunch of um, different engines in different places. So okay. they're, they're the, the, the thrusters that we use to sort of reorient ourselves uh, as we're, we're coming in for entry. Uh, but the descent stage is what flies us um, to the, the safe landing spot uh, that we pick. Now, what's interesting, this is what I read, that terrain relative navigation um, jumps up the chance of success, a successful landing exactly where you want it from 80 or 85 percent to about 99 percent. So that's how that's how good this technology is at, at guiding down based on all the sims that you've you've uh, you've done and, and used it with. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. As I mentioned earlier, what we're looking for in a safe landing site for EDL um, slopes, craters, rocks, none of those things we really like. Those all really equate to landing deaths for EDL, but they're so interesting. They're, they're massive science targets uh, for the scientists, and at the end of the day, that's why we're doing this mission. We want to enable some really, really exciting science. Uh, and so Curiosity and all the previous uh, Mars missions had to ensure that anywhere that we could possibly touch down was basically a parking lot, no sand dunes, nothing like that. But we don't have to do that with Perseverance, uh, mostly in part due to terrain relative navigation. There can be and will be rocks and slopes and craters uh, in Jezero, mm -hmm. Jezero Crater. Um, the middle, actually the middle of the landing lips is a, a, a cliff face that's like 60 to 80 meters tall, right on the edge of the river delta. So it's, I feel like if you were standing in the middle of Jezero Crater and looking around, it would be quite, quite beautiful, but it's exciting and um a little more more risky than has previously been attempted, but all of that is enabled because of uh, the TRN technology. So, um, Chloe, I believe like me and and I'm sure thousands, if not millions, of others are going to be glued to the TV trying to watch um, everything go down. What are we going to see? Are we gonna get? Are we going to be able to see some of the things that uh, Perseverance is seeing, like the terrain relative, relative navigation providing a video feed? Are we going to be looking at the control room? What are we going to see? So 
Yeah, so me and my whole team will be uh, at JPL uh, monitoring telemetry and, and anxiously awaiting <laughs> with the rest of the world to hear confirmation that Perseverance has touched down safely. Uh, and we'll be doing our best to share everything that she's telling us with the world in real time as that's happening. We have multiple different ways of relaying the the rich data set that the spacecraft generates during EDL back to us on Earth uh, during that time frame. We, we have tones of the X-band that are sent directly to Earth. I like to say it's sort of like the spacecraft singing us a little song as she flies EDL. So these, these tones, each tone indicates a, a different critical event has happened. So we might get a tone for the deployment of the parachute or a tone indicating that we just completed a bank reversal. Um, and these tones just sort of provide markers of, uh, of events that the spacecraft has, has affected off. We also get um, a tone, a pretty persistent tone, all the way throughout EDL that we call the heartbeat tone. Uh, and that's, that's basically just the spacecraft giving us a thumbs up from Mars and saying, like, yep, I'm still alive, I'm still trucking. <laughs> uh, so we, we look to see that intermittently and make sure that everything is okay. We also receive uh, the, the spacecraft communicates UHF data to our orbiters, to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, and the MAVEN spacecraft. Um, during EDL, and those are those are orbiters at Mars, uh, and those orbiters relay that information uh, to the Deep Space Network, uh, which has stations in California and Spain and Australia, so all over the world. Uh, and those those stations relay that data back to us at JPL. And and the data set we get from the orbiters is a little bit richer than what uh, the tones indicate. So it, it tells us a bit more information about the decisions that the spacecraft is making and the environment that it's experiencing throughout EDL. And so you will you will be in that uh, control room during the EDL phase and uh, you've, you've mentioned it before but make sure but correct me if I'm summarizing this incorrectly is your job is to make sure all of these connections this this pathway of how of how um, perseverance is communicating to you guys in, in, uh, in that control room, that those pathways are, are all functioning normally and properly and you're getting all the data you need. Yes, that's, that's exactly correct. Um, I think the most fascinating thing about the communications and the telemetry side of the world is just like it is in EDL, it takes so much effort, so much orchestration uh, and conducting of so many people and so many teams for such um, a small number of minutes to go off smoothly and successfully so everything has to go right nothing can go wrong uh for for one bit of data to make it uh the spacecraft computer out of the spacecraft antenna be received by the mars orbiters make it from the orbiters back to the dishes of the deep space network and then all the way back to our computer monitors at jpl so there's not a lot of room for error. It's very exciting. <laughs> well, you know, I think um, you, you've you've kind of mentioned this throughout our conversation today, but you've you've referred to uh, perseverance as she, and I think, <laughs> uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you know be, because of that pressure, because of uh, all of the all of your work going towards this 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 one moment, you all in your own kind of special way have have developed a connection to the rover and um, uh, in a way of kind of personifying it and making it into some, 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 instead of just a piece of hardware, something that you as a team can connect with and, and really engage with throughout, throughout this critical moment. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's fair. There's definitely a, a significant amount of personification going on, but um, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard teammates refer to the spacecraft as 
like their baby or their child. Some people think of it as an old friend or maybe a dog. But um, everyone relates to to it in a different way. But it goes without saying that it is incredibly meaningful to every scientist and engineer who's gotten the amazing opportunity to work on this project. Um, so it's you know it manifests itself in different ways. <laughs> so, so you came to JPL um, after Curiosity. That's correct. That's correct. Yes, oh. I actually um, I have, I remember watching the Curiosity entry, descent, and landing in my bedroom uh, in high school and thinking like, wow, those, those people are really cool. I wonder how I, how I figure out how to do what they're doing. <laughs> I, I watched it too. I was watching it uh, during, during an internship and I watched it live and, and I'll remember, you know, the, one of the highlights of the whole thing was, you know, you were just watching, you were just watching the control room and all these faces just glued to their, to their monitors. And of course, the big moment that I think everybody that watched that live remembers was the celebration, jumping up and down, yeah. the high fives. That's something that you get to be a part of now. It will, of course, look a little different than the, the jubilant celebrations of the past right, and what right. the celebrations in Mission Control looked like for Curiosity due to the pandemic. So, you know, our first and foremost priority is to keep each other safe. Um, so it's heartbreaking, but no hugs this time around. <laughs> Make do with elbow bumps, but um, that that certainly doesn't diminish the incredible feeling of, of successfully landing something on Mars and, and the pure joy and disbelief I think we'll, we'll all feel accompanying that. Well, you did, um, I'm sure you did get to uh, learn a lot from the folks who have been a part of that moment before during Curiosity, right? This, I mean, the landing looks very, very familiar to, to uh, Curiosity. So you have a lot of folks that worked hard on that and that you learned from. And I'm sure, I'm sure you got to learn from, you know, what to, do, what to do differently this time around, what to make sure we do consistently that was successful on Curiosity. I'm sure you got to hear a lot of those stories. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that's uh, easily the best part of the job is, is the people that we get to work with. And some of these people have been doing it not just since Curiosity, but decades ago. So they've been involved with so many successful missions. Their stories are unparalleled. Their um, their wisdom is, is infinite and there's no bounds. So there, there's a lot of um, important technical knowledge that, that gets uh, passed along throughout the generations, but also just like ways of doing things um, that, are, that you, know, you can really only learn firsthand. Yeah. So, um, Chloe, what's, uh, we're recording this, like you said, um, you know, just about a month ahead of the actual scheduled landing. So what's on, your, what's on your agenda from now until landing day on the 18th? Right now, as we are recording, we are in the middle of our final operational readiness test, which we also call our, our EDL dress rehearsal. Um, up until this point, we've been, as we talked about, simulating and practicing uh, on the spacecraft all sorts of different uh, situations and scenarios. But now we're at the point in the mission where we have to train ourselves. We have to train the team to make sure that we are um, ready to deal with uh, any sort of situation we might encounter. So we're stepping through all the motions of those final few days before EDL, uh, so getting the spacecraft ready for EDL, getting to the right place to start at the right time, telling the spacecraft what it needs to know. So th that's that process of uh, trajectory correction maneuvers and parameter updates and that, that um, cyclical sort of undertaking. Uh, and then, of course, in a few weeks, it won't be practicing anymore. We'll be, we'll be doing that process for real. There you go. Now, now you're going to have your celebratory, uh, you know, elbow bumps, as you mentioned, um, <laughs> socially distant uh, ce celebration. 
I'm curious, what's your role after, you know, you've been, you've been working up to this moment, right? Entry, descent, and landing. What's your, what's your role after EDL? We go through a process where we try and make sure we understood uh, exactly everything that happened and, and piece together the whole story. Uh, this helps us um, you know, prepare and understand things better for future missions and, and really uh, understand how our technology works. So we'll be piecing together all those little bits of telemetry and, and really trying to make sure we flesh out every single detail. And then, of course, the science will kick off on, on Perseverance. Uh, and the rover will start um, firing up all those instruments and, and carrying out uh, the mission to search for signs of past life. A really important thing. Now, now, Chloe, this is a, it's been a whole lot of work for you, and, and I know I could sense your excitement through for getting ready uh, for this moment. Um, you know, kind of let us in on some of the some of the culture, some of the, you know, not, not necessarily secrets, but just the behind the scenes <laughs> of just working at JPL um, you know, working with the teams that are that are working on this rover, and just the, just the culture that you have there to to put together a mission like this. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an amazing culture. Uh, there's an expression at JPL that we we dare mighty things, uh, and I think to accompany that sort of mission philosophy, you have to have a, a tight knit culture uh, and a group of people that are really supportive, but also really push each other to, to do our best and, and put forth our best ideas. Um, it, it's a little cliche to say, but I, I truly feel like the, the EDL team itself is so much more than just a team. It's a family in every sense of the word. Uh, it's a, it's a, a group of very interesting, very diverse, very wonderfully weird people. Um, but I feel like we all complement each other uh, so well. <laughs> of course, in the pre-pandemic days, used to get up to all sorts of hijinks. We had goat yoga and axe throwing and laser tag. And I remember for one one holiday season, we all acquired Nerf guns for some reason. And then there was a solid two or three weeks where we were just chasing each other in circles around our our, our floor, our cubicle area, and uh, being, being very productive. <laughs> but it's a very tight-knit team. Uh, it's been, of course, the honor of a lifetime to work with them and learn from these incredibly accomplished people. Yeah, I think you need that, right? Because you're you're working so hard on something so complicated, and to have a, and to have that kind of culture that that brings you all together to to make sure you're getting the job done. I think I think is a wonderful thing. Exactly. Uh, if you have so many late nights in the test bed, it it really yeah. helps to actually like the people that you're working with. It makes <laughs> all the difference. Well, well, Chloe, from here at the Johnson Space Center, we're going to be watching intently uh, for the for the landing itself. Uh, we'll be rooting for you, and of course for Perseverance and all the great science that it's going to do after this this critical seven minutes of terror, the entry, descent, and landing phase. Looking forward to everything we're going to be learning uh, when that rover actually starts doing its mission. Um, Chloe Sackier, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast and, and describing in detail all the wonderful things that we get to look forward to. Um, I know I feel prepped and, and ready to and know what to expect for when I'm watching uh, the, the real deal for live on the on the 18th. So so best of luck to you and, and of course to your team. Thank you so much. It's been really fun hanging out.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chloe Sackier on what's going to happen during the entry, descent, and landing phase of Perseverance's journey to the Martian surface. Now, we are doing this podcast specifically on EDL uh, for Perseverance. In fact, you can check out another one of our episodes, uh, 174. We... uh, that one's called Sticking the Landing on Mars. We talk with some experts about what happens when you add the human element to landing on Mars. But we are just one episode of many through all of the different NASA podcasts we have across the agency. Uh, check out some of their episodes as well. We got Curious Universe. We got Gravity Assist. And they're going to be talking about different elements of uh, the of perseverance, some of the science, and some of the sounds, uh, some interesting parts of the mission. This is EDL. So make sure you check out some of those podcasts. You can go to nasa.gov slash podcasts uh, to check out any of those episodes. Uh, if you're curious about the Perseverance rover itself or want to learn more about Mars or its objectives, there's a good website for that, mars.nasa.gov. And, of course, click on the Perseverance rover. Now, if you want to watch Landing Live, we talked about watching it live. We're putting this out ahead so that we can tell you exactly when it's going to land. Um, it is landing 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 12.30 p.m. Pacific, and the broadcast is going to start 30 minutes before landing, 3 p.m. Eastern and uh, noon Pacific. So make sure you tune in right on time and watch the whole thing, especially those those uh, seven minutes of terror. You can follow us, Houston Wave Podcast, on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Go to the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of any one of those. And if you want to talk to us, use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. And make sure to mention it's for us at Houston We Have a Podcast. Now, this episode was recorded on January 13th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and Andrew Good. Thanks again to Chloe Sackier for taking the time to come on the show, even uh, in the middle of some of her preparations for this uh, for this mission. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, give us a rating and some feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of the show. We'll be back next week. <laughs>